death is not the most hopeful way to begin a sermon. Strangely, we hear about death all the time, but in a conversation, it's a topic we avoid. We're living in days when the news is filled with death. I wonder when is the last time that you and your friend talked about death. Some years ago, my grandfather died, and I remember very clearly that the doctor that was present in the room when he died, immediately after he was dead, said, he's in a better place. And as I thought about that, I I wondered, how did she know that? What gave her confidence to say that with such certainty? In Ecclesiastes 7, we read, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's simply better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. Why? Because the funeral has much more to teach you about life than the party. The scriptures do not avoid death. The scriptures hold death out to you very clearly because the scriptures want you to understand life, how to live, where life itself is found. Now, this morning, we are gathered here to go to a funeral. We're gathered here to consider the death of Jesus. Last week, we saw him crucified. This week, we see him dead. I think the temptation is to speed past this and get to the resurrection. Now, if you didn't know that was coming, I'm sorry that I ruined the story for you. But I do think the temptation is to say, cross, yeah, death, but the resurrection. But his death matters. And his death is not what you think it is. His death is the door to life. Turn to John 19, verse 31 to 42. I'll begin reading in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Well, here's the main point. Rejoice in Jesus' death. It demands your faith and it secures your hope. Rejoice in Jesus' death. It demands your faith and it secures your hope. That's the two points. First, Jesus' death demands your faith. It demands your faith. Verse 31 to 37. Jesus' death demands your faith. John just doesn't move from crucifixion to resurrection. He slows down here. He wants you to look at his death. And he says in verse 31, it was the day of preparation. This is Friday. The Sabbath was coming the next day on Saturday. And he says it was a high day. Why was it high? Why was it special? It's Passover week. Because of this, Jews, they didn't want the bodies on the cross, so they go and ask Pilate that their legs would be broken so that these criminals can be taken away. The Romans would have left the bodies there for days. They would have uh, waited for them for the vultures to come and to to devour the bodies. But you can imagine the horrific sight that this was for people who saw this. Remember, crucifixions were not private. They were public. People were meant to see dead bodies in decay. So why did the Jews want them taken down? Well, they wanted them taken down because of their own law. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, we read this. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you. So to protect their land from being defiled, themselves, the bodies needed to be taken down. So they went to Pilate. Now by breaking their legs, they would have no longer been able to push up from the cross and get oxygen. And that would bring about death quickly from what is asphyxiation, which is a hard word to say, but simply not having air. They would have gone to the two men on the outside, the two on that side, the two those two men crucifying, and two on the other side. They would have broken their legs. But when they came to Jesus, I think clearly to their surprise, he was already dead. Remember, he had been flogged twice. He didn't make it as long as the others. So they didn't break his legs. It was most likely, I think, just to be sure, verse 34, that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and caused the blood and the water to come out at once. Now, you can imagine in scholarly literature, there's all kinds of discussion about where they 
would have had to put the spear in order for blood and water to flow out just as once. But that's not John's interest. It's not how it came out, but that it came out. That real blood and real water really flowed out because Jesus was a real man, a human being who really died. In John's own day, many people believed in the lie of asceticism, which was the belief that Jesus only appeared to be human, and so his sufferings weren't real. In our day, we read in the Quran about Jesus. They did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. Well, John means for you to see that real blood and real water flowed out of his very real body. And John means for you to see he saw this firsthand with his own eyes. That's what he says in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. This is credible. It's believable. He knows he's telling the truth. And why? That you may believe. John is emphatic about the death of Jesus, not that you will doubt, but that you will believe. Only with Jesus does his death demand your faith. When Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, he wasn't calling you to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood, but believe on him, his crucified and dead body, his sacrifice that was final. John isn't hiding his death because his death is good news. It demands your faith. John saw it. John bore witness. John did not say that by accident. If you go all the way back to John 1 in this gospel, we meet there John the Baptist who proclaimed to the world the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we read in John 1, 34. You can turn there if you want. John 1, 34. John the Baptist saying, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the author, John the apostle, saw and bore witness that he died. John the Baptist saw and bore witness that he is the Son of God. What does John want you to see? It's only by seeing and believing the witness that the Son of God was crucified and died, that you see his glory, that you truly believe in Jesus. And you might be sitting there saying, wait a minute, isn't his death the downer? Yeah, we, we always say, right, uh, don't worry about him being dead. Sunday's coming. Well, no. John doesn't understand that Jesus' death is ultimately a tragedy. His death is the great fulfillment. It's not just cross and resurrection. That's the gospel. His death is gospel. Why? Well, look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes two texts. The first he quotes, not one of his bones will be broken. 
Now, did you notice as we read this that John narrowed in on the bones? The Jews asked that their bones be broken. The soldiers broke the bones of the two men who were crucified with Jesus. But when they saw that Jesus was already dead, they did not break his legs. They expected there were bones that would need breaking. They didn't have to break any. And John says that in this, the scriptures have been fulfilled. Why is he saying that? Well, when God's people left Exodus, or left the Egypt in the Exodus, they were commanded in Exodus 12, 46, concerning the Passover lamb, shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The same is said in Numbers 9. And it's also said in a different way in Psalm 34, another Psalm of David in which God protects the righteous sufferer. David writes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is the God who protects the bones of the Passover lamb the God who protects the bones of his anointed one. And John would have reflected on that day and its events, and he would have seen eternal significance in the fact that there was no need for the soldiers to break Jesus's bones because he had died. So the shadow of the Passover lamb that God's people had very carefully protected and eaten year after year for centuries, finds its fulfillment. It comes to full light in Jesus, the righteous sufferer, Passover lamb, God kept and protected. And yet you're also not meant to miss the irony here. What were the Jewish leaders so concerned for that they would not defile themselves? That's what kept them from entering into the governor's headquarters when they brought Jesus to Pilate. They're still so concerned that they won't defile themselves during the Passover by leaving hanged, cursed men on the tree that they wanted him off as soon as possible. How blind they were. On the cross hangs, John tells us, the true Passover lamb, the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who alone can make human beings who have been defiled by sin actually clean. They knew their law. They were blind to the one whom the law is all about. So you can see physical reality, but you might not perceive spiritual reality. They saw Jesus on the cross. They could not perceive who Jesus was, God's true king, God's Passover lamb. The blood he shed was the only blood that cleanses sinners' deepest defilement. Can you see physically and not perceive spiritually? Well, the reason they couldn't see Jesus rightly was because they could not see themselves rightly. They didn't see how deep their own defilement 
win. And so what were they trusting in? Solutions they could manage. Remove the hangman from the tree. Don't go into the Gentile residence. Now, those requirements had their place. They were an actual gracious provision from God for life before God in the land that could cleanse you at the level of the flesh, but not at your conscience level. They could not, as Hebrews 9 says, perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body until the time of reformation. The point was the entire Mosaic law, that period and God's redemptive historical plan, it was never meant to cleanse you at the level of the conscience. It was a temporary provision graciously given by God until the one who could cleanse your conscience came into the world. And unknown to these religious leaders, the true Passover lamb had just offered himself up to God as the final sacrifice. His death cleanses the conscience. The Puritan said that a good conscience is the greatest blessing there is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has cleansed your conscience. And you should see all that our triune God has done to bring that about. I'd ask generally, do you have confidence that you have peace with God? Until you see sin as something far more profound, powerful, deep, destructive, deadly in God's world, until you see it as something more than just little mistakes or this little act that you did rather than power that reigns over human beings and that you are under so much so that there's nothing you can do to offer up some righteousness to God until you see that you're going to try to keep cleansing yourself with stuff that will never cleanse you. Your conscience for it to be cleansed demands payment. And John is saying that as the final Passover lamb who paid for sin, Jesus has made that payment that you might believe, that you might not be defiled. The reason he's raised from the dead is because his sacrifice was accepted, that he finished the work of salvation. So I wonder what you're looking to, what you're trusting in, cleanse your conscience. And is it enough? Jesus can cleanse your conscience. He was enough for them. He's enough for you. Don't stay at a distance from Jesus. Come near to him in faith. See the links to which God has gone in Christ and believe in Jesus for your salvation. Passover lamb of God has been sacrificed and his blood is enough. John also sees a second scripture fulfilled. Verse 37, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He's quoting Zechariah, which Leslie read. And the context there is God delivering his people from Gentile nations as they attack Jerusalem. And in response, Yahweh says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now in Zechariah's day, he is speaking of the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, who was pierced 
symbolically. And God is so closely identifying himself with his anointed king, he says, they will look on me whom they pierce. John sees this text finding its fulfillment in Jesus, God's true king. These soldiers in a very ordinary way would have pierced his side. And yet John sees in it an event of significance that was far more than they could have fathomed. It's as if God himself was pierced. Why do they mourn for him? I think many of John's original readers knew their Old Testament. And they knew that very closely connected to that passage, just a few verses down, was God's declaration that on that day there shall be a fountain open to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And I will cut off the name of the idols. They mourn in repentance. They mourn over their sin. They mourn over what they've done. And yet those who reject him will mourn in despair. We see this text again in John's writing, in scripture, in Revelation 1. The the risen Christ appears a second time not to take judgment on himself, but to bring judgment to the world. And John declares he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They will see that in the rejection of the Lord's anointed, that they will mourn in desperation for rejecting him. Israel's true king was pierced. How great is the compassion and the grace of God that his piercing opens the fountain that cleanses sin, that cleans our uncleanness, uncleanliness, that destroys the power of idols. His death does not demand your sorrow or your rejection. His death demands your faith. For every other human being, death is the sign they have been defeated by sin. But for Jesus, his death was the defeat of sin. He did not go into death because death finished him, but he went into death to finish death. With Jesus, death died. Only the death of Jesus could demand your faith. Only his death is cause for rejoicing. There's every reason to avoid thinking about death, if not for Jesus's death. He did not avoid death. He went into it that you might have eternal life and you might live your life for what is eternal. His death fulfills scripture. And so his death demands your faith. And secondly, Jesus's death secures your hope. Jesus's death secures your hope. Verses 38 to 42. When he died, there were men who sprung into action, influential men, wealthy men. Verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away his body, and Pilate gave him permission. Now, Joseph is mentioned in the other Gospels. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
Matthew tells us he was rich. Mark and Luke tell us he was looking for the kingdom of God. John calls him a disciple. But it's only John who tells us that he went to Pilate secretly because he feared the Jews. It's his courageous risk that he took to go to Pilate that overcomes what in John's gospel would have been a damning indictment. Why did he ask for the body? Because Jesus had been crucified for sedition, rebellion, and he would not have been afforded a proper burial. He should have been left there. If buried, there was a burial site for criminals like these guys outside of the city where their bodies, they believed, wouldn't desecrate the bodies of innocents who had been buried in a common grave with multiple people. If not for Joseph, who used what was his high-ranking position to get to Pilate, he had access to make the ask, Jesus would have absolutely been put into a grave filled with others who had also at different times been crucified. Pilate surely granted his request because he knew Jesus was innocent. Maybe he even wanted to stick it to the Jewish leaders that he didn't like one more time. Nevertheless, Joseph came. He took away his body. And John also uniquely tells us, verse 39, that Nicodemus was involved as well. He reminds us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus shrouded in spiritual darkness, unable to understand what Jesus was saying when he said that to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. He could not see spiritual reality. He sat with the light of the world and he was so steeped in darkness that he didn't see him. And so he went out of that conversation back into the night. But here he is coming to Jesus in the light of the day to anoint his body with spices. It would have required that Nicodemus bring his servants with him because it was about 75 pounds in weight, around 35 kilograms. It's definitely an indication of how wealthy he is. But it's more than that. It's John's way of telling us that Nicodemus, who could not see Jesus then, sees him now. The amount of spices he brought was an amount that would have been reserved for royalty. And that's how Nicodemus sees Jesus now as a king who deserves a kingly burial. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus' death is not just for the outsiders, it's for the insiders. It's for the elite, it's for the connected, it's for the wealthy, it's for the privileged, because all of us are fundamentally in need of the same cross the same blood, the same Savior. Every man needs to be born again. As I thought about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, I I thought to myself, they would have been those that we would have thought of as way too hard to reach. I mean, they had all that this world could give them. They would have had no felt needs. By grace, they came to see their need for Jesus. They saw that all the goods of this world are not enough. Never write someone off who you know or love when it comes to Jesus. With Jesus, there is always hope. Nicodemus walked away from Jesus, but he didn't stay away. There's hope for your family member. There's hope for your friend. 
There's hope for that person or those people that seem so hard. There's hope for you. Even if you're respectfully listening to me right now, but don't believe a word of it. There's hope. The gospel never loses hope on people in this world. The gospel holds out more hope than this world. Jesus really does make disciples of the hardest people. Hardest cases. Don't ever believe the lie that you're more persistent or committed to seeing someone saved than Jesus is. His death secures hope. Notice John tells us where they put the body. Verse 41, near where he was crucified in a garden, a new tomb. No one had been laid there. They laid him there. All right, so sundown was approaching. Sabbath begins at sundown. They didn't have much time and Verse 38, John says twice, Joseph asked Pilate for the body. Joseph came and took away the body. Verse 40, Nicodemus' servants, they took the body of Jesus and anointed it. Finally, verse 42, they laid Jesus, his body, in that tomb. What's the point? There was a real body in a real tomb on that Friday. And it's God's kindness, it's God's providential sovereign care that he wasn't thrown into a tomb with a bunch of other people. Oh, if he'd been thrown into that kind of tomb with many others, it would be very hard to prove that it was his body that had gone missing if somehow it didn't end up there. But if it were a tomb with only one body and it went missing, it's next to impossible to not deny the obvious unless you just refuse to see it. A real body in a real garden tomb. Garden is where human history began. And sin and death came into our world. If you ask me, a garden tomb is a great place for resurrection from the dead. There's every reason for hope. Now you might say, I I know about the cross and the resurrection, that they're significant, but what about Jesus's death? What was he doing between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Jesus descended to the dead. Death is the separation of your body from your soul. Until the end of everything, the soul in death goes where the body does not. And Jesus in his soul went into the realm of the dead. So just as in his work on the cross, there was more than meets the eye, so also in his work in death. We confess, and we purposely confessed this morning, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. And why does this matter? Because for Jesus, descending into death, into the dead, was unlike any other person who went before him. Remember, on the cross, he declared for the world, it is finished. He accomplished salvation. He reigned from the cross. And so when he descended to death, he did not go there as one more defeated human being, but as the only human being who finished the work of salvation to bring the effects of the cross to this realm of God's world. 
Now, what do we know about the realm of the dead before Jesus came into the world? Well, we don't know a lot, but we do know some things. In the Old Testament, this realm is referred to as Sheol. So if heaven is where God and all of his glory and his angels particularly dwell, of course, God is everywhere, but this is where he and his glory particularly dwell, Sheol is the realm where the dead dwell. And between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Jesus descended in his soul to this realm. Now, at this point in history, before Jesus returned to heaven, when he ascended, there was a place in Sheol where the righteous dwelled, a place where the righteous dwelled and the wicked dwelled. The realm of the righteous would have been known as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. It's, it's what we see in the account that Jesus gives of Lazarus in Luke 16. The poor man died and went to Abraham's side while the rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Lazarus was comforted at Abraham's side. The rich man was tormented in Hades. So two realms, realm of the righteous, realm of the wicked. And when Jesus finished the work of salvation, he descended to the dead for very specific reasons. He went to the realm of the righteous, those who were trusting in God's Messiah when they died, but who had not yet gone into heaven because Jesus had not yet accomplished salvation. They knew comfort, but they did not know the fullness of heaven. Jesus went to them to liberate them. It was only after he finished this work of salvation that he could return into heaven as son of God in power and stand as the savior and the redeemer of his people. Before then, those who died trusting in God's promises were, as the prophet Zechariah says, prisoners of hope, who God would set free by his humble king from the waterless pit. When Jesus died, he died as the king. And he descended to the dead, not for more punishment, not for suffering, but to liberate everyone who had trusted in him through the promises before he came into the world. And he descended into the realm of the dead, even Hades, where the wicked dwell, to bind the strong man, to subdue Satan. The promise that had just sat there for centuries that The serpent would bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. It was at the cross and in his descent to the dead when Jesus did that. And he proclaimed victory to the demons. We read in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who were those spirits in prison that he proclaimed to when his soul was separated from his body? Death in the flesh, alive in the spirit. It was demons who did not stay within their boundaries. In his death, he descended to liberate his people, to subdue Satan, to proclaim victory to the demonic realm. And just as he descended, he ascended. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And Paul is quoting there Psalm 68 in which God rescues his people from Sheol. He victoriously descends to where his people are, where they're held captive and leads them out. So having finished the work, Christ victoriously descended to Sheol to death to liberate the many righteous souls for whom he had shed his blood. And he led his captives out when he ascended on high. Far from being the piece of the weekend that you skip over or that we leave out, Jesus was at work in death. He descended to the dead and his death secures your hope. By faith, through your union with Christ, you do not have to fear death. Your savior has gone into death, not defeated, but to defeat it. Those invisible beings, wicked as they are, who live in the realm of death, even now, they know all too well that Jesus has accomplished salvation for sinners. They understand the realities of this universe better than the vast majority of people on the planet. And they know that Jesus has subdued the serpent. They know the victory he's proclaimed. They know he has defeated death. And they know that there is an end date that is coming. When you who have trusted in Christ come to your death, you are not going into the state that the Savior knows nothing of. You're going into the state that Jesus the King has upended. This means there's no realm of the created world into which Jesus, our Savior and King, has not gone. Death really has been defeated. And this means that you're free to lose your life because there's no place in this world, in the seen world and in the unseen world, where King Jesus will not find you and go with you. In his excellent book, Remember Death, Matt McCullough writes, if death tells us we're not too important to die, the gospel tells us we're so important that Christ died for us. And not because death's message about us is wrong, it isn't. On our own, we are dispensable. But joined to Christ through our union with him, we are righteous. We are children of God and God will not let us die any more than he left Jesus in the grave. If not for Christ's death, you should absolutely be terrified of death. But Christ's death means you go into death united with your Savior who destroyed the power of death. His death means you are eternally loved by the Father, eternally sealed with the Spirit. The Father did not lose his Son in death, and he will not lose anyone united to his Son in death. You do not go to death forgotten, but with Christ, you go named and known. We will be with Christ where he is. Do not ever start to think of death as normal and natural. It's not. God created this whole universe so that long life would be normal and death would be strange, not the other way around. But sin has reversed that. Death is the intrusion. And by descending to the dead, Jesus Christ subdued the serpent and he liberated his own. Jesus is the king. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. He conquered 
He reigns over death. Rejoice in his crucifixion, rejoice in his resurrection, and rejoice in his death because he reigns over it. Your Savior is with you. And because of his work in death, you can be sure there's no place in the universe to which you will go where he has not gone and he will not go with you. Believe him and live and die in hope.